Hello there. Welcome to the show tag, The African Data Scientist, a podcast where we get to tell the story of the African AI and data science potential. I'm your host for this episode, Stephen Oladele, and in this episode, we had an insightful conversation with Dr. Sebastian Rashka, who is one of the most prominent persons in the AI and machine learning community. He gives a lot of valuable insights on what to focus on as a researcher, how African countries can go about adopting an AI curriculum to the educational system, as well as the challenges he faced while starting out and what it takes to write a good book. Major links mentioned in the show will be in the show notes so you can check them right after listening and if you enjoy the show please rate five star wherever you listen to the podcast share with your colleagues and enjoy the show hello dr sebastian rashke how are you doing today i'm doing fine uh, and it's a pleasure talking to you today again so i remember we had a brief conversation at the port harcourt school of ai yeah. the conference <laughs> yeah. a few weeks ago yeah. and yeah it's my pleasure to be here again and talking to you we're absolutely delighted as a community we're very excited you you took out your time to join us today. Thank you so much. So yeah, Dr. Sebastian, of course, it's no denying that you are one of the most prominent figures in you know, the machine learning community today. And therefore, our listeners may already know a lot about you. Well, can you tell us what they don't know, already know about you as you try to introduce yourself? Um, yeah, thank you for the kind uh, mentioning of me being one of the prominent figures in machine learning. Sure. I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, for people who maybe don't know about me, I'm uh, currently a machine learning or uh, assistant professor of statistics teaching machine learning at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Mm. Um, maybe people also know me from my blog. I was uh, blogging quite a lot when I was in grad school. And then at some point in 2015, I started writing a book called Python Machine Learning. And that is a book that was updated now two times. So there's a second and a third uh, edition. So chances are that you heard maybe about one of the three editions. Yeah. And besides uh, machine learning and deep learning research, I also uh, often collaborate with people in the field of computational biology, where we mostly care about um, yeah drug discovery, ligand discovery problems, where we use mostly machine learning and deep learning to um, discover small molecules that can be uh, targeting certain proteins may be involved in diseases, but not always. But yeah, the goal is also to use machine learning and deep learning for something productive or useful. All right. Thank you so much. I mean, if, if you've not heard about Python machine learning listeners, then <laughs> I don't know where you've been in the ML industry because that's a, a really, really amazing book. Thank you once again for writing such an amazing book. Thank you. I really appreciate yeah. that. All right. So Dr. Sebastian, wh when did you decide during your career that you were going to spend more time in the academia? Because you mentioned, of course, you are a professor of statistics, um, associate professor of statistics at the University of Wisconsin. When did you decide during your career you were going to spend more time in the academia as opposed to the industry? Yeah. Um that is a very interesting question and it's a very tough question actually because uh, I remember it's not too long ago when I finished uh, grad school about three years ago and yeah. in my last year I was like a little bit torn like 50-50 shall I go into industry shall I do uh, or stay in academia because I think there are pros and cons on both sides and so I was like hmm which which career path should I pick and to be honest I kind of deferred the decision until after my PhD defense because mm -hmm. the two, three months before your PhD defense are super busy. You're mainly occupied with uh, writing your thesis. Yeah. And I was, I would say it was a lot of stress during that time. I thought, okay, maybe I'll finish uh, this first. We'll take maybe two or three months off and then really think uh, thoroughly about what I want to do next. Um, but yeah, also during that time when I was working on my PhD thesis, there were some uh, companies reaching out and also luckily the Department of Statistics yeah. at um, University of Wisconsin, they somehow saw that I was graduating and they asked me to interview there because they just had a job opening there for an assistant professor position. And I was... Um, 
then doing my defense and at the same time just sending a quick application. And I was really lucky that they invited me in February to do the interview. So I did a few interviews also at uh, in industry and also uh, at the University of Wisconsin uh, Medicine. Mm. And during my visit, I got really excited about the idea of staying in academia. So I was uh, in that time uh, thinking a little bit more about it. And then I visited Madison and I really liked the uh, city, the department, the colleagues there, but also most importantly, the vision there that yeah. um, we wanted to get more into data science. And right now, so since I joined, there are also all the promises came true, basically. So there's a new data science major that we have. Yeah. There's the uh, data science institute that we have, a new institute for doing data science and also facilitating uh, data science research. But then uh, we also have the new School of Computer Data and Information Sciences, which is kind of merging computer science with the statistics and also the information school. And I think this is super exciting. I'm, I really care about teaching, as you may know. So yeah. <laughs> I um, do both research and teaching. And also that is one of my kind of, um, yeah, of the things I enjoy, like helping other students or helping students to be successful and um, passing on the knowledge next to doing research. So in that way, I thought um, a position in academia would be quite perfect. <laughs> All right. Are, are you still considering, you know, moving to the industry sometime soon? Or? Um, right now, I'm happy. I don't have any hmm. particular plans, okay. but uh, you never know what's, uh, what the what future, the future brings. But okay. uh, yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. Dr. Sebastian, when did you decide machine learning was for you and you wanted to do research here? You know, what's the story like? Yeah, so that is also another interesting question. It's a long time ago, going back to yeah. grad school. So um, when I was uh, in grad school, I studied uh, quantitative biology, basically um, biology uh, computationally. So I was only, I can remember when I talked to my uh, PhD advisor back then in 2011, 2012, I told her um, basically that I really just want to work computationally. That was my passion. Um, because as you know, maybe some biologists or actually the majority work like on experiments, but lab experiments, I was more like always a computer person and I like numbers, statistics. So I also early on in grad school, um, I signed up for classes uh, related to um, statistical pattern recognition. So I think it was 2012, I took the introduction to st uh, statistical pattern recognition, which was um, CS801, like a grad level course. And I really got fascinated by that. Um, that is a... I would say it's related to machine yeah. learning, but it was more focused on traditional pattern recognition, but still all the techniques presented there, they really fascinated me because it was essentially also about teaching the computer to recognize pattern and doing uh, classification. And that was more based on, I would say, um, statistical techniques, uh, base um, classifiers, also naive base and all the um, more statistical related things. And then I on myself, by myself started to study it more from a computer science perspective perspective as well. I took a data yeah. mining course. Um, and then I really, I just uh, was reading through textbooks and just trying to absorb as much as I can. I got really fascinated by what you can do with machine learning and then later also deep learning. And I think um, also then kind of having the idea how you can relate and apply that to practical problems then in computational and quantitative biology was what really fascinated me, which is, I think, what got me into doing machine learning and deep learning research. Mm -hmm. Such such um, such a fascinating journey. Of course, moving from the computational biology side of things to, to machine learning as a field. Thank you so much, Dr. Sebastian, for you know sharing your, your journey with us. Now, what were the specific challenges you faced while starting out in the field of you know, machine learning? And you know, how did you overcome such challenges? 
Yeah, that is uh, also an interesting question. So maybe that's also related to the statistical pattern recognition class mm, okay. I took back then in 2012. Um, because yeah, our homeworks were due in MATLAB. <laughs> so that was maybe one, one major challenge, um, writing MATLAB code. I mean, MATLAB is not bad, but I'm just saying it's, um, I think, for me, I'm a very applied person. I like to tinker around. So I, of course, also write down equations on pen, with pen and paper, but I ultimately want to implement them and try them out to get a better understanding. So um, back then, that was 2012, the landscape, the machine learning landscape in, let's say, Python wasn't so developed yet. Um, there were a lot of tools and libraries out there, but also, as you know, MATLAB is proprietary, so you would have to have a university license or a company license. Mm -hmm, yeah. There was Octave back then, but, you know, everything was a little bit rough around the edges. There were not many tutorials on the internet, so you had to kind of... Um, work by yourself to kind of develop these things. So what I did is essentially I took uh, the textbooks, um, there was just equations and I turned them into code. So that was when I started blogging, um, blogging about principal component analysis, linear discriminant analysis, um, kernel density and estimations and things like that. Yeah. So I kind of, um, maybe it was also a uh, advantage, but I kind of was forced to implement things my, myself if I wanted to have them in Python. Um, but it's also a great learning experience. But I think, so this, the challenge back then was really um, the shortage of, I would say, hands-on material. And nowadays, I think it's hopefully a little bit easier, right? So yeah. there's a lot of um, material now in books, but also YouTube and um, blog articles. But yeah, so that, that was, I would say, one of my major challenges. Nowadays, though, I think there's a new challenge. Now that we have so many resources, I think it can be hard sometimes to uh, pick the right one. So you can easily get maybe distracted by reading too many um, tutorials that are similar. So yeah. you kind of relearn or reread the same thing and it's also not very productive instead of let's say uh, going to the next challenge to reading or working on something more challenging you can maybe sometimes get stuck um, learning about the same thing over and over again awesome thanks so much um, for for that insights dr sebastian now you mentioned of course books being a resource and and that's where i think our next question will come in because you are one you you wrote the Python machine learning book, which has helped a lot of practitioners get started today and helped a lot of people get started in machine learning. So here goes the question. Now, what does it take to write a good book in machine learning? <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> that's uh, um, you have a lot of interesting, tough questions today. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah, what does it take? I so that kind of implies you're saying it's a good book, which I'm happy it's, to it's, hear. It's, it's um, one of the best books. <laughs> whoa, <laughs> yeah, thank you, I appreciate it. So, um, yeah, what does it take to write a good book? I mean. Back then, I wrote a very, very small book. Uh, it's more like a pamphlet. Before this book, it was about heat maps in R. And uh, I got maybe a little bit experience there, but ultimately, I, I just started from scratch. Basically, I didn't have much experience. I think what helped me was a little bit about uh, knowing about the audience. Like, should it be more like a practical or theoretical book because there were a lot of uh, theoretical books out there already, but there wasn't that much of a practical book out there. So in that way, I kind of felt very motivated to write something to provide, let's say, more hands-on experiences to people. So the motivation and knowing your audience. But then also thinking about when you write a book, is the book more like for teaching or informing people or like reviewing? So I would write a book differently for academia, for let's say professors who just want to 
learn about the theory because maybe they um, don't implement the code themselves. Maybe they are just more like trying to get an overview of the field. I would write such a book differently from, let's say, a book where I really want to teach people to do things hands-on, like um, for, let's say, grad students who want to use it in their research and also want to see maybe some code examples. So I I think it's important to think about who the book is for. But Mm -hmm. then also, um, I think I had one advantage that I was relatively new to machine learning. I maybe had a few years of experience, but I didn't have decades of experience. So I think that was also an advantage. I I think it's good to know as much as you can. But then I think there's also the danger. I noticed that nowadays sometimes when I'm teaching that if you know too much about a particular topic, you sometimes get bogged down into detail. So by that, I mean that you... um, you explain something, but you know there's more to it and then you start uh, getting more, I would say, uh, you cover too much detail and it, it's getting confusing for students if you cover too yeah. much uh, detail too early. So it's sometimes also helpful just to, even though you know, okay, this is just a very brief summary, just um, keep it uh, simple also and then maybe yeah. go into the details later. But it's, uh, I think, an important skill to know when to stop that you don't describe things in too much detail. And also, together with that, I think it's very important to uh, do good planning, to think mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. the contents and how they connect. So mm-hmm. for the Python machine learning book, there's, for example, a little bit of, some people like that, some people don't like the order, but I was back then thinking really hard about how to organize things. So what I wanted to is uh, first explain things um, with very simple examples, like having something, implementing it from scratch, and then kind of understanding how machine learning works. I implemented for that a perceptron algorithm in the second chapter. And then also the Adeline, which uh, is an adaptive linear neuron that um, I used to explain gradient descent and stochastic gradient descent. But then the other chapters in the book, they go into different topics like model evaluation, hyperparameter tuning, but then also how to use scikit-learn. And then later in chapter 10, I go back to neural networks. So there I kind of need the ideas behind Adeline again. And uh, these ideas using a nonlinear activation functions are then used to build up a multilayer neural network. So it's a little bit odd that you go, let's say, perception, a single layer neuron in chapter two, and then come back to it in chapter 10. Uh, and everything in between is unrelated. But I thought uh, I could have done this differently, but new networks are a very complicated topic. And also, it's important to know about, let's say, basic scikit-learn, how to use it, to do model evaluation. So it was kind of hard to to find the perfect solution. But I think it's just important um, to think about these uh, things before you write this and also do some planning and uh think about how you present the uh, topics in order. I should say I, I'm happy with the order in Python machine learning. That's what I finally decided to, but other people think differently. And it's important, I think, to think this through. And then it helps you with the writing because then you know uh, you can refer to re- uh, other resources later. And then it's it's kind of a smooth uh, journey. It's not like um, piecing together yeah, bits and pieces there. Mm, all right. That, I think that, that uh, those are great insights for people who are looking to write great books like Python and Machine Learning. Of course, speaking of Python Machine Learning, it's a really introductory book for, for beginners. So listeners, if you haven't gotten that yet, just check it out. Links will be in the show notes for you to, to grab your copy of the, of the book, the amazing book, by the way. Now, Python Machine Learning, of course, is an introductory book. 
Well, let's try to hear from the horse's mouth himself, um, of course, Dr. Sebastian Rushka. How would you advise people getting started in machine learning and AI today to learn? How, and of course, you're, you're a fan of open source as well. You know, you, of course, they'll want to contribute to open source early on in their career. And how would you advise them to learn machine learning today? And of course, contribute to open source machine learning projects early on in their career? Yeah, wow, that's uh, another interesting question. So, um, yeah, there are two parts to it. How uh, I would advise people getting started with machine learning and AI today, and then the open source part you mentioned. So yeah. let me um, maybe address the first part uh, first. So I think there are a lot of resources out there right now, like I mentioned before. Yeah. And I think um, one of the important aspects is really to stay focused, to maybe... Um, Maybe a good idea would be to just write down or do some research what uh, resources are available, like articles, books, uh, online courses, and then make a curriculum, like writing things down in a way um, that you think makes sense. But then you may go back and revise the content, but just to make sure that you also have a progression there, that you don't mm, yeah. cover the same topic over and over again. For example, sometimes if a topic is very difficult, it makes sense to read um, chapters about the topic in two different books, for example, because things may be explained a little bit differently. But if you don't find that challenging, let's say the topic, then skip to the next topic. Don't get hung up uh, reading about it over and over again, because while this is not harmful, it kind of, um, it's not the most productive way to learn. It's, um, it sounds tough to say, but I think the most productive way to learn is really to struggle, to have some <laughs> yeah. challenge, because if you're challenged, then you get the best uh, bang for the buck, I think, in, in yeah. terms of investing your time to advance your skills. But then I think also what's very important is to find um, something like a small community, like classmates, like taking an online course together or reading a book together mm. in a way that you can have exchanges on a, on a regular basis that you have like discussion groups where you... Um, explain maybe even things to each other. I think that's maybe very uh, a very good way to kind of learn also. I mean, for me personally, it helps a lot to explain things to others because then I realize what I don't know and that helps me kind of learn new things and also the exchange itself it's there's something about having discussions that that makes learning very productive i think yeah so um yeah for that part i think um choosing your resources or material wisely because right now there's a lot of stuff out there and stay uh, try to stay focused but then also find yeah communities to discuss things and um, learn with others together i think that's also making the whole thing more fun than rather than sitting alone at home and yeah, just studying by yourself so i think that's it's another important thing um the second part was about open source yeah, yeah as you know i really like open source and I usually always um, recommend students to participate in open source. I think nowadays it's also part of a resume or a CV if you apply for let's say a position to have let's say even your GitHub um, repository link on the CV or resume. So in that way it is important but I think um, there are only so many things uh, what I want to say is there are a lot of machine learning libraries out there and I'm not sure if it's the most productive thing to develop another machine learning library. So in that way, I think the most useful thing is to look for machine learning libraries that are going to be around for a while, mm, yeah. um, where it's like worthwhile spending time on and making them better. One of them is, for example, Scikit-Learn, and they have a very nice community of people. People are super nice there and um, also they have what they uh, 
do nicely is they have an issue list on GitHub that is curated where some are tagged like for beginners, like an easy issue to fix. And then it yeah. helps really people, I think, getting their uh, feet wet with um, participating in open source contributing. And I think one of the reasons why open source contributions are important and useful is that you can learn a lot by reading other people's code. It's yeah. um, you, you can see things from a different perspective and then also discussions can happen. When you implement some code, someone has maybe some feedback for you. Or if you see someone else's code, they've maybe accomplished something or done something, implemented something you have never thought about before implementing in this way. And then you think about, huh, is it maybe good or bad or is it uh, something at least it's something that exposes you to new ideas basically it's otherwise you do um, your thing always your own way and then you never kind of learn something new and in this way you see things from a different perspective but then I think um, when it comes to machine learning and AI uh, beyond just code contributions or improving let's say tools I think it's also nowadays very interesting to work on cool projects like uh, applied projects so that with that I mean not writing the code for the sake of developing a library but more like writing your code to solve a particular problem it could yeah. be code that is not just for the library it's, it could be code to uh, clean a particular data set for example and I think by that you also will gain a lot of experience and then I would say instead of just only considering uh, code contributions to let's say scikit-learn also maybe look for interesting um, competitions on Kaggle or mm, maybe yeah. you have um, other like personal interests like that where you can machine uh, where machine learning can be applied and then also finding maybe a team with whom you can uh, solve that challenge and then put your solution let's say on GitHub or maybe even write a, sh a short blog post or a preprint paper I think it's also a very good investment of your time nowadays. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And cargo competitions, like cargo competitions, like you, like you mentioned, Dr. Sebastian Rashka is, of course, one of the um, prominent ways to, you know, how to open source. And we have, of course, our own cargo in Africa here. We call it Zinc. Mm. <laughs> it's it's like it's like cargo for Africa, pretty much, where we solve African problems with uh, online data science competition. That sounds uh, really cool. I will look it up afterwards. I've never heard of it. Yeah, that sounds yeah, really cool. Africa. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Now, speaking about Africa, you know, this this podcast is about the African data scientists. And what we try to do is to, you know, tell the story of the African AI and data science potential. You know, how do you think developing countries, especially in Africa, you know, can thrive in this age of AI, where AI is becoming um, rapidly evolving as a, as a field on its own? In its right, how do you think developing countries can you know, thrive? In yeah, I think um, that's an interesting question. So um, it's maybe related to what you just said about having your own version of Kaggle. I think um, Africa mm -hmm. is very yeah. unique, and there are so many unique people with experiences that are different from, let's say, other countries. I think. It would be very interesting and uh, important to focus on the uh, local issues or problems and challenges and yeah. develop AI system to really address um, problems that are maybe where people in other countries are not aware of them. I think that might be something where Africa can really... Um, yeah, thrive in the way that you would develop um, local solutions, but then also leveraging all the domain knowledge that you have. Uh, a lot of people in other countries are not 
that aware of issues that exist in Africa and they only develop systems yeah. that are maybe only having applications in their countries. For example, right now, self-driving cars and things like that, that's maybe not a priority in uh, Africa right now. I think um, in that way, leveraging unique experiences and the domain knowledge, I think that would be something where I think Africa can contribute a lot to AI. But then also things like... Um, language uh, development. Uh, Africa has a high diversity as far as I know in terms of different languages spoken there. So compared to let's say um, the US and I think that will also kind of uh, be useful to consider that in the development of uh, natural language processing um, systems to, to just um, experiment yeah. with new data sets and develop um, general solutions using unique data sets and different data sets. All right. Thank you so much. Um Dr. Sebastian, for, for that insight. We're talking about um, natural language processing is, in fact, uh, I think one key area, like you said, about the vertical industry is our domain knowledge and expertise. And most of our listeners here are Africans, and we hope, of course, they, they take the valuable insights from your knowledge here today. Now, I know, you, of course, you've worked in a research lab, have you, Dr. Sebastian? Mm -hmm. So I uh, have a yeah. very small research okay. lab with my students. Um, yep, okay. that's right. I know you, of course, you also spend most of your time in academia. You know, how would you advise a small research lab in, in Africa, you know, starting out in AI to sort of like navigate their early phase? And what do you think they should aim at? Yeah, I think also that goes uh, with mm, the previous yeah. question, where I think it, it would make sense to leverage the local um, resources in terms of data sets and problems. And uh, from there, really, I think using... Um, yeah, the domain knowledge of this, also the interests, like uh, tailoring it to something where people feel like if they work on that problem, that they accomplish something really big, that they have really a, comp a contribution to science and also the community, especially. I think uh, the problems can be formulated in a way that they have a high impact to local yeah, areas. I think that might be very motivating to see then how it really affects um, the local problem uh, area mm, all right awesome yeah so go, moving on with our questions now for for universities in africa you know that want to adopt data science to their curriculum and perhaps skill up lecturers and professors with ai you know how would you advise them to go about it having seen that you've you've served as uh you're currently serving as the associate professor of statistics at the um, university of wisconsin yeah. Yeah. So I think it is. Um, I mean, it's certainly not easy to uh, design a curriculum from scratch. Yeah. So I would say it, it, it is just a suggestion, but maybe it would make sense to also um, do it gradually. Like uh, Rome wasn't built in one day. So in yeah. that way, uh, I think first the, the most important part is getting people that includes lecturers, yeah. uh, instructors, but also the students interested uh, in the topic, right? So we can't, I mean, it's a very hot topic, data science, machine learning, and so forth. Absolutely. But I don't yeah. think we can just take it for granted that everyone is super excited about it. So I think with that, it might be um, nice to um, start with something like giving guest lectures. Mm -hmm. okay. So maybe having uh, some people in your community who are already interested in machine learning and uh, data science to uh, give guest lectures in related fields, okay. um, like could be economics or um, even agriculture and uh, other fields to just have some very interesting applications of machine learning or talking about how machine learning and data science could have an impact in uh, getting people interested in that way. Um, and I think also nowadays, so uh, one of maybe one of the positive things about COVID nineteen is that 
lots of things have moved to online uh, right now. Yeah. So in that way, I think there are also opportunities for um, lecturers and professors to um, join, let's say, conferences more mm -hmm. easily, yeah. like attending uh, virtual events. Mm -hmm. And then maybe also um, partnering with other universities, learning about um, things uh, like curriculums from other schools, schools. who are already having yeah. a curriculum. And then... Um, taking maybe some ideas from there, adding elective courses maybe to um, your school, like having courses that are where the credit points can be transferred to your main course of study, but starting course by course, not let's say designing 10 courses at once and having a degree, but adding like an um, introduction to data science that many students can take in other fields. Yeah. And then building up from there, like um, doing it one by one. And then after you have these elective courses, maybe merging them into a data science or machine learning degree at some point. But I, I think it's it's just challenging to have like a whole degree from scratch, like uh, from one semester to the other. So I think doing it gradually, that might be something um, that could work or could work well. Hmm. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for that insight, um, Dr. Sebastian. Now, of course, looking at you, you've given us good insights for how, you know, they can adopt curriculums. Now, for the, for instructors and lecturers in, out there in African ac academic ecosystem, you know, what's the best way? What would you advise to be the best way to teach machine learning in this day and age for them, for these instructors and, and, the, and lecturers looking to, you know, um, teach in the African ecosystem? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say, uh, so I, uh, it's all very hypothetical so, <laughs> because yeah. we haven't, or I haven't, uh, been actively, uh, tried that yet. I don't know if that's good or bad advice, but I would say I wouldn't completely throw out all the kind of traditional teaching because it has worked for a lot of people. So a lot of people who went through the traditional route, like classic textbooks and, um, teaching material, they yeah. become successful researchers. So I wouldn't yeah. completely uh, throw this out, uh, this idea. But um, also, I think uh, related to what I said earlier, I think um, having very motivational applications to inspire students, because once it, uh, you inspired students, they will also learn by their own. Because I think if you just um, go through textbooks uh, and nothing else, having no kind of relevance to current uh, or local problems, then I think you just learn for the sake of learning you, to get good grades or something like that. But once you see how this could be used to solve some of your problems or problems that are very close to you, then I think when you get really motivated, you will learn more easily and you will absorb more knowledge and study by your own. And the whole the learning experience will be just more fun, I think. So in that way, bringing the um, machine learning together with yeah the local problems again to kind of um, show some uh, relevance behind it, that it's not just yeah. a way of, let's say, getting good grades if you study or maybe making a lot of money, but also to really help people and solve problems. Yeah. Oh, okay. Awesome. Awesome. Really good. Um, I hope our listeners who are you know, instructors and lecturers get to take some, some, something out of that. Now, talking about the academia once again, you know, what do you think a lot of people often get wrong about researching ML and AI that you think that, you know, it's not really concrete? Yeah, so um, I think machine learning and AI, they are very fascinating topics and they are super excited, uh, exciting to study, at least uh, from my perspective. But I think one thing that people often get wrong, I mean, this is more like for people 
who maybe haven't done research in machine learning and AI is um, some people, I think it's partly due to the media, they think it's a magic bullet that you just apply it to something and it will do the right thing all of the time. So for example, I just uh, yesterday had a conversation with uh, someone asking about whether we can develop an AI system to make decisions in court, like uh, yeah. uh, court rulings and deciding yeah. whether someone could, should go to jail and, or not. And I think there are lots of problems with uh It would be a lot of lots of problems with that. Um, I mean, also, let's just say uh, there's no issue with biases and stuff like that. Even then, I think it's not just straightforward to apply a system like that. I'm not even sure. I haven't thought about this much because we just had the conversation yesterday, but I don't even think it's ethical to do something like that, or at least not with the technology we have. So I think one of the things people often get wrong is it's just also people sometimes think like, okay, you you can just use AI to apply to a certain problem and it's just like a magic uh, bullet that will do the right thing. And it's also easy to do that. And it certainly is not easy. I mean, if you look right now, we can apply machine learning or AI maybe relatively well to image classification, yeah. um, maybe some text classification, mm -hmm. generating yeah. some text, but that's about it. I mean, I think going beyond that, we are not there yet. It's not like the super magic bullet. And um, it's not like that we have, we don't even have self-driving cars yet out on the streets. So yeah. in that way, mm -hmm. yeah. I think everything is very experimental and uh, we have to th take things uh, with a grain of salt right now. We can't mm -hmm. uh, expect too much right now. And I think that's, that's one of the problems that it's um, the way it's communicated. It's sometimes making it look more than it is and then people get disappointed when things don't work out as well yeah absolutely the hype and, and and all of that taking people's expectations of thank you so much for that clarification dr sebastian now i'm talking about research i know lots of our listeners out there today are looking at becoming no researchers others becoming engineers and probably research engineers someone who is getting started or who is already in the space of research what qualities do you think they need to to become a world-class researcher in in the fields of machine learning and AI? Yeah, I think for that, if you want to get into machine learning and AI, and um, I think what it takes really is uh, your motivation. That's true for any kind of field that you um, have to be motivated to work on that and yeah. also be able to um, kind of narrow it down to uh, aspects that you are particularly interested in because machine learning and AI is a very big field and it's right now already impossible to know all about uh, about all of the fields or subfields so in that way i think it's important to at some point to uh develop a special interest in a subfield could be i mean the subfield could be maybe even broader like image classification but for example splitting your time between image classification natural language processing and let's say uh reinforcement learning with or for developing self-driving cars doing all three things That could be overwhelming. So in that way, I think focusing on on something where you are really motivated about motivated about to develop new um, solutions that would be something. But then also um, on a more broader scale, um, I think it's very important to learn how to say no to distractions or opportunities even. And that's also what I'm having a hard time with. Um, so to be careful not to say yes to everything. So you may have noticed I wrote uh, the book like in 2015, the two updates, but yeah. I haven't wrote, written any other book right now. Mm -hmm. And that is because I, I would really like to write another book, but I know it takes a lot of time and uh, the time only or the day has only 24 hours and you can't do everything 
things. So in that way, yeah. it's sometimes important, even though it's interesting to you to say no to things. Um, it's hard, it's, but it's, I think, an important skill to keep focused. Also, maybe having not too many research uh, problems because mm -hmm. then you yeah. get spread too thin. Okay. And yep. then every of you, it's more about quantity than quality. And I think, yeah, time management is really important. But then also in the end, having some patience because it, it takes years to develop um, yeah, the skills to be good at something. And it's not just a month or a course. It takes multiple courses to learn really about a topic and books that you need to read. So patience is also some very important skill, I think. Patience, time management, and learning how to say no. Um, I think these mm -hmm. are absolutely good qualities. You've you recommended, um, Dr. Sebastian. And thank you so much. Now, of course, looking at the machine learning landscape, now, what do you think is changing in the machine learning landscape in the next three or so years that you think people should know about? Because right now, of course, you are into the research space. And of course, it's when things are successful in research that they are pushed to engineering and you know, made, uh, made use of by people. Now, what do you think is changing in this landscape in the next three or so years? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, uh, oh, wow, that's like a very hypothetical question. So what's mm -hmm. happening yeah. in the next uh, three years? So. Yeah. Everything I'm going to say now is just speculation. I have no idea what's going to happen in three years. But yeah. what I think is um, there will be maybe not so many fundamental changes in the way that we do uh, or implement machine learning AI systems. So I think we will still be using uh, deep learning architectures that we have now, maybe modified versions of it. We, I think we will still use backpropagation in three years. Um, but what I think is that we change is that um, we are maybe more conscious about resources. So on the one hand, if you look at all the language models with billions of parameters right now, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That is for certain applications. But then at mm -hmm, the same yeah. time, there's right now a lot of discussion about privacy. And um, one of the problems is that most of the applications on your cell phone, what they do is they use some server backend. So you, uh, is the cell phone picks up the data, but then it's sent to some server and then it's doing the machine learning uh, AI part and sends you back the results. And that may change, I don't know, but I think if um, people, uh, let's say, are becoming more concerned about privacy, there are more regulations being implemented, then researchers have more of an incentive to develop systems that yeah. work locally on your cell phone. Mm -hmm. I yeah. think um, Apple just did that or announced that at the WWDC in some, like a few weeks ago in summer, that I think they have some language model that will do text or speech uh, translation on the phone compared to, let's say, sending something off to servers. So I think something... Uh, in that, um, I think direction might be becoming more yeah, popular in the future that people develop smaller systems. Um, I mean, cell phones are becoming more capable, but at the same time, you can't just still not have like billions of parameters on the cell phone. It will be um, way beyond the cell phone's storage capi yeah. uh, capabilities. But mm -hmm. then also you have to think about um, maybe tailoring your network or your network to the application, like having some learning component, not that it is just some application that has been pre-trained. So in that yeah. way, you also want to have it efficiently updating but then also um, going away from the privacy stuff, what I think is also becoming hopefully more popular is um, that people will start applying machine learning to uh, domains outside of text and images. So right now, many applications are related to text analysis, speech uh, and image classification. That is, I, I would say right now, uh, more like the low-hanging fruit. What becomes, I think, more interesting is to think about how these technologies can be applied to data that is not text and data that is not images. So one area where I'm uh, kind of 
involved in is or I'm currently working on is computational biology, uh, in particular, uh, small molecule analysis, yeah. discovery, and analyzing how small molecules and proteins interact. And this is neither text nor image data. Molecules are small graphs or small molecules are small graphs, but uh, proteins would be big graphs. So you have uh, graphs, uh, gra graphical data in that way. So there are nowadays uh, more or actually a lot right now techniques for graph neural networks. So deep learning with graphs. So that is one way um, deep learning has been or is now being applied to data that is not text and images. But I think, uh, yeah, it would be exciting to see more of that in other application areas where machine learning is usefully used uh, on data that is not text and images. Mm, all right. So for, for, these, for these applications you're looking at, are these applications also uh, what you're excited about in the future of, you know, machine learning and AI or yes, a uh, completely different thing you're excited about looking at the future of this field. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would be, of course, very excited about seeing uh, something that is not backpropagation, some uh, new uh, algorithm <laughs> for <brain> training <laughs> neural networks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's just I, I would I'm not sure uh, if that is feasible. If there is something, I mean, I think no one knows, but I would be certainly excited about that. It's not that uh, things don't work well yet, but uh, backpropagation, for example, has been around for 30 years, and I'm always open to changes. <laughs> no, but seriously, I'm excited about really uh, seeing applications of deep learning, like I said before, on data that is not text and images. Right yeah. now, all the graph neural networks are very experimental. They are uh, right now relatively new, have been developed maybe in the last one, two, three years. And seeing that really to uh, apply to real world problems, like even something maybe now for um, COVID related uh, issues for discovery there of like um, certain antigens and um, things like that. Um, so for that, I think, uh, I think I would like to see really like applications also of deep learning to things that are not text images. That's what I'm excited about. So, okay, um, looking at all the verticals, right? So, we, of course, you spoke about molecules and, and everything. So just um, just to digress a little bit, what's the what's the progress like coming to the side of computational bio um, statistics and all of those things? What do you think is the, what's the progress like in, in such field? Yeah, um, I think computational biology is um, a little bit traditional. There's a lot of... Um, stuff available that has been developed uh, decades ago, which is super useful. Yeah. There's a lot of domain knowledge. And I think domain knowledge is very important in that field. Mm. Um, it allows you to... So because the, the reason is if you develop or find a ligand that binds to protein, there's always uh, maybe not an optimal interaction between the two. So you can, with chemical knowledge, yeah. you can optimize a molecule to bind better for, uh, to the protein. And in that way, I think it's also important for an AI system to kind of be able to make suggestions such like um, predicting what changes make a molecule more active, for example, binding yeah. more tightly. But then at the same time, what limitation is currently also is that we are screening available databases. So there are databases of millions of molecules. We are just screening them to discover something. And it is working well. So you just test or, or you apply your predictor to all the types of molecules there. Mm -hmm. yeah. But then maybe we are um, not very efficient with our time. Maybe it would be more efficient to not screen an existing library, but maybe synthesize a molecule from scratch. So let's say I, I have a protein binding pocket. And instead of just docking all the small molecules into that binding pocket, what I could do is I could maybe synthesize the molecule. So I could just um, create the molecule in the binding pocket without even considering my data set. The only condition would be, of course, that this should be a molecule that could be synthesized so that a chemical 
chemist can make basically but yeah, yeah we still need um we still need chemists uh and domain knowledge because even if we do a prediction we need people to if they don't exist yet to synthesize these molecules yeah. and have, they have to know how to synthesize the molecules mm -hmm. yeah. and then also um, you have to have people who are able to do the experiments that you have to uh, do to validate the results and things like that um, and right now also all the computational techniques are very I would say rough they are more like filtering mm -hmm. um, so what you do is basically you start with a computationally cheapest technique apply it to all the molecules and then you filter out um, candidates that might be promising and of course mm -hmm. there are a lot of faults positives but there are also a lot of false negatives so you're going to include some molecules that are not interesting but then you also miss a lot of molecules that may or could have been interesting so there are a lot of challenges where uh, i think also traditional techniques um, are still useful where you can apply them together with different it's like an ensemble of techniques where you uh approach the problem from different perspectives and then you combine or integrate these perspectives to get better results. Mm. All right. Thank you so much for that insight, Dr. Sebastian. Now, talking about solving problems with, you know, AI, you know, do you have any advice for people starting to apply machine learning to real-world problems, uh, whether it's through a company, which, of course, a startup or a non-profit or through a government body? Huh, I think maybe I would start with an existing problem. It's... Uh, Picking something you are somewhat interested in that is maybe somewhat related to a problem you want, you really care about. Maybe looking for something related uh, on Kaggle and then maybe doing some, uh, yeah, competitions on Kaggle just to develop your skills and see, but to have like a reference to see whether, uh, how you could, how, how good your skills are or if you are doing it the right way in a way that, um, that you can have a something to compare your results to because if you have a new problem you never know uh, what the threshold is is 60% accuracy good is it not good for example uh, just to say something trivial with uh, accuracy but it's it's hard sometimes to develop something where you don't know whether it's good or not so of mm -hmm. course you can yeah. say uh, you can think about the problem um, what do you care about is this a meaningful measure is this um, a threshold where you are happy with deploying the system yeah. but also when you just start um, I think it's important to uh, first of all get some uh, yeah, motivation to see something that works So, and in the real world uh, working with new data is always messy it's very challenging. It takes a lot of time to obtain a label and clean your data. So maybe starting with uh, something where someone has done the hard work for you mm -hmm. and yeah. you do the fun part, the machine learning modeling, uh, that would be something to start with, I think, um, doing that for maybe yeah the first couple of weeks or months. And then yeah, starting to think about how you obtain data for the problem you care about and then plan planning that problem and then also maybe seeking collaborations because it's still a very important um, to, to have someone who knows about the problem from, let's say, not a computational but really a real-world uh, experience mm -hmm. to have some domain uh, experts to uh, help you or guide you and someone also you can talk about uh, if... Uh if there are, let's say, weird things in your data set where you can ask someone about, um, does it make sense? Um, is there some issue with my data? And what yeah. data can I get from you or from uh, people who have worked with that so that you have a broader uh, perspectives? Because right now, I mean, um, for just a trivial example, um, I'm one of the moderators of the machine learning category on Archive. And there are a lot of papers right now uh, that are applying convolutional networks to um, x-ray crystallography. Uh, no, not crystal. I'm mixing it with computational biology. Sorry. X-ray pictures of lung images mm -hmm, yeah. 
of lungs for uh, COVID detection. And there are maybe hundreds of papers right now working on that level of uh, prediction. So maybe uh, collaborating with uh, Nobain experts would be useful to ask what other types of data could we get from you that we can develop machine learning systems that can, let's say, predict whether a patient has COVID or not without, let's say, requiring a PCR um, or a sample like a saliva sample. So is there another way maybe we can do an accurate prediction of COVID? So instead of just oh, everyone yeah. is using these uh, X-ray images of the lungs, mm -hmm. is there something yeah. else? And as a machine learning expert, you may not know because you you only work with the data that is, let's say, available somewhere. So in that way, I think it's important to collaborate with uh, domain experts also. And also just to see whether what you're developing is really useful, mm -hmm. basically. Yeah. Mm. All right. It's been a wonderful conversation with you, Dr. Sebastian. I actually learned a lot and I hope our listeners are learning or of course we'll learn a lot as well. Now on the final notes, do you have any departing thoughts for our listeners? Um, yeah, first of all, time was running like always. And yeah. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. And yeah, for the listeners, I would just say uh, stay motivated, stay curious and uh, yeah, start learning and um, have fun. All right. Thank you so much once again, Dr. Sebastian Rashka for joining us today. Um, Dr. Sebastian, once again, is the author of Python Machine Learning Book. Every link we mentioned will be in the show notes if you if you can expose that to make sure that you you you, you get on point with this. And um, see you next time, guys. Bye-bye.